All right, good evening, everybody. Trust everyone's doing well. Um, so tonight, we're starting our series called Your Neighbor's Faith. And so it's going to kind of dovetail out of the Calvinism series that we just had, uh, talking about that. But obviously, the Calvinism series was way more in-depth. Um, we're going to try to cover as much as we can. There's a few weeks that we'll probably end up taking multiple weeks. Um, I'd imagine once we get to Catholicism, uh, it will take several weeks to go through that. And I know that we're going to be touching on the charismatic movement again. And going through some of that, we didn't do that too long ago. But what I love about this study and the whole purpose of the study is when it comes to various religions and belief systems, it's important for us to know what other people believe. And we have to be careful. And we're going to talk about this as we get into the details of it because we can't obsess over it. There's a lot of people that their big soapbox is other religions. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind throughout this study is that we're always going to go back to what the Bible says, because that's what matters the most. When you study the scriptures and you study what is true, it becomes very easy to see the things that are not right. They just pop out at you. We mentioned that during the Calvinism study. When I was younger and I started to come in contact with Calvinism and false doctrine in Calvinism, there are certain things that I couldn't quite put my finger on. I couldn't quite articulate or explain, and they made me feel like I was an idiot because I didn't know what I was talking about because they've gone to school, and they learned all the ologies, and they've gotten the degrees. But I knew it wasn't the scriptures. I knew it was not aligned up with the scriptures. And so that's very important, because once you start getting into different faiths and different religions, you could spend an entire lifetime and become an expert on all these different religions, but what you really just need to do is study the truth. That's what you really need to do. So we're going to have an introduction tonight, and we're going to tackle our very first one. We're going to talk about what does a true church look like according to the scriptures. But before we do that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the details. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us today. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to be able to assemble and the freedom to be able to have your book in our hands, uh, because it really is, in truth, your word. This is your mind, your heart. And we can trust every single word. And in our day and age, when it comes to faiths and religions, it can get very, very confusing out there. And I do believe that that is a tactic of the enemy to try to bring out mass confusion so people aren't willing to even search things out. They're like, all of it is just a mess. And so I do think it is a tactic of the devil. And so I pray tonight that you would give us wisdom, that you would open up our understanding Help me to be able to say things the right way, because I do want to represent you well, and I also want to take a look at this from a perspective that is right and that is true, and that would get us all just thinking in the right direction, and to build us and to edify us so we can honor you and glorify you to the best of our ability. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for everyone that came out, and I pray, God, that you would help us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the very top of your study sheet, we have under your neighbor's faith, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. I feel like this is such a perfect verse for this study because as we're living out our faith, people are going to ask us questions and you should be able to answer those questions. And even if there's things that you don't know how to answer, be honest about it. You know, I don't know the answer to that. I'll come back and I'll, I'll I'll follow back up with you and let you know what I have found out. But we need to do it with meekness and fear because the moment that you start to answer questions and arrogance, why would they want anything to do with your God or your Bible or anything that you have to say? 
That drives me nuts. I can't stand it when Christians are just arrogant about what they believe, and they belittle other people. Jesus never did that. Whenever he spoke harshly, it was because of the hypocrisy of the Sadducees and Pharisees, because they were being arrogant about their faith and shoving it down people's throats. And so he answered them according to their folly. So it's important for us to understand that verse, and that's going to be the theme verse for this entire study. So, under the introduction, this world, the world, is full of many religions, faiths, and belief systems. When the common mindset is every man did that which is right in his own eyes, which is so true today, faiths and beliefs will continue to grow, and the enemy of God will continue to capitalize on all of it to keep the lost blinded from the truth of the gospel and to keep the saved ineffective in the work of the Lord, which is simply evangelism and discipleship. The only way we can properly navigate ourselves in the ever-increasing chaos of religions, faiths, and belief systems is to be mature disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that we must know, love, and obey the Word of God so that everyone we meet would be able to look to us for truth, answers, and guidance. Can you truly look at those around you and say, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And if not, what do you need to do to be ready? If there's anybody in this world that people should be able to look to of what it means to be a real Christian, it should be Bible believers. It should be us. And unfortunately, a lot of people that say they believe the Bible actually fail in all of this because they're not following Christ. They're not, not properly. So what is the purpose of this study? So first of all, we're going to explore various religions and belief systems. Secondly, we're going to allow the Bible to discern truth from error. Thirdly, we are going to equip Bible believers to know what you believe and why. And fourthly, we want to help believers to reach the lost and wayward for Christ to bear fruit that would remain. Because John 15 is very clear that God is glorified when we bear much fruit. So that's what we want to do. Through this study, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that for all of us, that we'd be able to be practically equipped so that way you can actually go and have conversations with people and have boldness. And we certainly don't want it to end up like this. I'm up. I'm up. It's him again. Him who? Him. Go to church with you. We don't care what you wear. Our pastor is funny. We won't ask for money. Who even uses a boombox anymore? 
I'll say anything to get us to go to church. So anyway, so we don't want it to be like that. We should be able to give people proper, proper answers. And so we want everyone to be equipped in order to do that so we don't look like idiots like that. So, so we're going to approach each religion and each faith using four basic points. I know it says three, might say three on yours, it's four there. And that is number one, we're going to look at the founder. Who is the founder of this particular belief system? Secondly, what are the authorities that they have? And that's so important. We're going to talk about that tonight. Uh, thirdly, what is their doctrine? What are the things that they say that they believe? And fourthly, what does the Bible say? And there's some important considerations that we need to make sure that we cover as well. First of all, discernment only comes as we exercise ourselves in the Bible. This is very important. In Hebrews 5, it says this, and I'll just quote it. It says, For when, for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, that is the written word of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The only way that we can grow and mature is if you are exercised in the word of God. And that means that you can't just depend on Sunday morning messages, Wednesday night messages, or even your discipleship meetings in order to grow in your walk with God. This has to be something that you're doing on a daily basis. If you are not getting into the Bible on your own and learning how to study it on your own, how in the world are you going to be able to grow and to mature properly? You're not going to be able to. And then if someone comes and talks to you, how are you going to be able to give an answer? And, and I think that's re one reason why people don't open up their mouth and talk about their faith because they're afraid of what someone's going to ask them. And you need to put yourself out there because how are you going to grow and learn unless you actually get out there and ha start having conversations? And so it's important for us to be able to do that. Secondly, it is possible to be a member of a biblical church and be lost. It is totally possible to be a member of a biblical church and be lost. And it is possible to be a member of an unbiblical church and be saved. Salvation is based on a personal response to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's important for us to understand that. There are many people that have assumptions that just because a person goes to a church that is not doctrinally sound or might even be completely against the gospel that they are automatically lost. That's not necessarily true. And so think about that. And just because you go to a good biblical church does not mean that people are automatically saved either. There are times when I was in the senior high and we were talking about biblical relationships and dating where I told them openly, just because someone goes to this church does not mean that you should be dating them. Because there are people that come to this church and they are not faithful. And you need to be dating someone, looking for a future life partner who is faithful to the Lord first. And so it's important that we consider some of those things. So the first thing that we want to talk about tonight is the true church. And what does a true church look like? So open up to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and then we'll go through this part of the introduction, Ephesians chapter 2. Before we get into any other faith or belief system, 
we have to talk about what does a true church look like? A true biblical church. Ephesians chapter 2. And our focus is going to be on verse 20. So we'll read that one once we get there. But on your opening paragraph here under the true church, the Lord Jesus Christ declared that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. That's what he said in Matthew 16, 18. He also is called the rock, capital R, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. And he's called the chief cornerstone with the apostles and prophets as the foundation. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being a, the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So Jesus Christ is that cornerstone, and that cornerstone is essential because it's the first one that's laid. And when that cornerstone is then laid, then everything else is built out from it. And so when he says here the foundation of the apostles and prophets, they were absolutely critical in the early church, especially in the book of Acts, because they laid the foundation of his church, whether they realized it or not at the time. That's what they were doing. And this is also why the concepts of apostolic succession in modern-day prophets are bogus. Because you can only lay one foundation. You don't lay multiple foundations. And yet we have Christian denominations that are out there in the world that have modern-day prophets, and they have people that believe that they're modern-day apostles. And that is unbiblical. It is unbiblical. Once those men laid the foundation, there is no more need to build another foundation and another foundation and another foundation. And so that's why those offices are completely out of date at this point, because the church has been established. But Jesus Christ is the one that started it. So, continuing in the paragraph, the Lord promised that his church would survive the test of time amid much confusion and division caused by false prophets, false teachers, false disciples, false doctrines, false converts, and false traditions of men that remove the word of God from the hands of the common people. I mean, think about it. If it is true and biblical, would it not last? Yes, it will last. And that's important. It's just like when it comes to which version of the Bible that you should use. It's the exact same kind of thing because there's a lot of counterfeits that are out there. It's the exact same thing. There's a lot of counterfeit denominations that are out there. So how in the world are you going to be able to find the right one? Well, he said that it would stand the test of time because if, God, if it didn't, then God would not be perfect. And what are we all doing here? We might as well all go home. Or we can actually go and find what a true biblical church actually looks like. And that's what we want to do. We want to lay that foundation first. So, how can you know if a church is a true church? And here it is. It's very simple. Any local church that lines up with the Bible is a true church. It must follow the biblical criteria laid out by God. Not tradition. What does the Bible say? Not how a church makes you feel necessarily. What does the Bible say? There are so many people that go to churches today just because of how it makes them feel when it comes to the music. There's so many people that go to church just, just for music alone. That's horrible. I would never let that be my only criteria because there's nothing that's laid out in the scriptures when it comes to local churches where Jesus says, well, you're going to be looking for a church that sings only hymns. 
Like he never said anything like that. Well, you're going to be looking for a church that is modern and keeps up with the times. No, he never said anything about that. Music is preferential. It always has been. It's supposed to minister to your heart and to minister his word to the people. And frankly, when you think about it, especially with church services, it's a very important part of our church services because it prepares people to hear the word of God. And so we have a very common rule here when it comes to music that we do. We don't want to do anything that distracts people away from hearing the word of God being preached. If anything, everything that we sing and everything that we do on a Sunday morning is to amplify that time spent in the word of God together. That's what it should be for. And so we don't want to sing songs that are unbiblical. We want to sing songs that are very biblical. But there's freedom in that. Jesus never laid out, here's the 10 things that you must do in order to have proper music in your church. He didn't do that. And so the most important thing is what do they do with the Bible? What do they believe concerning the Bible? And they will have sound doctrine, and that will be a true biblical church. So first of all, the founder The founder is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we already looked at Ephesians 2.20. But he is the rock. And we already talked about that. There are other rocks that are out there that attempt to counterfeit God's plan. He said this in Deuteronomy 32. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about that. The devil is an angel of light. And he has ministers of righteousness. And so how are you going to be able to tell the difference in between what is God's and what is actually of the devil? Well, the only way is by lining it up with the scriptures. That's the only way. Because the devil is so good at what he does that you're not going to be able to tell. You're not going to be able to discern between what is a good church and not without the scriptures. Because if you don't have the scriptures, then what are you left with? You're left with man's tradition. You're left with your own family history. You're left with your preferences and your opinions. And good luck because it's going to be a mess. And that's why churches are a mess out there today. They're an absolute mess because they refuse to align themselves with the written word of God. And that's important for us to understand. Secondly, their authority. When it comes to their authority, the authority of the true church is the Bible. The Bible is our final authority. Notice in other religions that we're going to look at in the future, they're going to be authorities. Well, we only have one, and that is the scriptures. And the Bible is very clear on that. 2 Timothy 3 is, is one of my favorite verses when it comes to that one because it talks about that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Word of God is sound enough to keep us on the straight and narrow when it comes to our doctrine, and so a church needs to let it be the boss of everything that we do. All false religions, faiths, and belief systems will have more than one authority to justify whatever they want to believe. And that is absolutely true. And it can be seen all over the place. We even talked about that during the Calvinism series. So you say, okay, they believe sola scriptura, Bible alone. Okay, well then prove it. Because they jump from their Bible in an English language, and then they go back to the Greek and Hebrew. Well, I thought you trusted the Bible alone. Well, yeah, but I actually go back to the Greek and Hebrew. Well, that's what that Greek and Hebrew says. But where are you getting those definitions? Well, I'm getting it from these lexicons over here. Well, how are you coming up with that? Well, this pastor over here said this, and this commentary said this over here. Okay, so now you say Scripture alone, but you've just mentioned Bible, Greek and Hebrew, commentaries, pastors, 
And you start going down the list, and they would never admit that they have more than one authority. But they will jump to whatever they want to in order to justify their doctrinal positions. And it's the same in anything else. We're going to talk about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church uses the Bible only when it's convenient. They will use it when it's convenient. They'll throw out other parts of the Bible that they don't want. Or they'll say that it's, it's, it's just totally mythical or it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. Like they don't believe in the literal interpretation of the book of Genesis because they believe in evolution because they need to keep up with the times to stay attractive to people. The Catholic Church does not believe in the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. If they did, they would believe the same things that we do about the book of Revelation that there is a rapture of the church and that Jesus Christ is coming back literally to set up a kingdom for a thousand years. They don't believe that. They don't believe that. They believe that they are responsible to usher in his kingdom. And that's not what the scriptures teach. So then they will jump to church fathers. They'll jump to the Pope. They'll jump to the traditions of this and that and the other. They'll jump to the creeds. They'll jump to all these things. They will never take the Bible alone. And it's going to be the same pattern that we're going to see in the future. If the Bible is the final authority, then it is the only authority. And this is also why you don't want to waste too much time obsessing over false doctrine and false religions. We need to get our heart and mind saturated in the truth, because when you do that, you'll be able to spot anything else. Now, when it comes to our doctrine, the doctrine of a true church, what are the marks? And there's eight of them, and we're going to work through them tonight. We're not going to be able to cover all the details of all the verses, but there's a few that I want to spend some time on. So first of all, the message, the message of salvation. A true church will teach and preach that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Go to Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10 makes it very clear. What does a person need to do in order to be saved? Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 and verse 13. Verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is very simple. In verse 9, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. Well, who was he? Well, he was God come in the flesh. And he did not sin at all. He was divine. And when he died, he died not only for the sins of people that would receive him, he died for the sins of the whole world. And we cover that in great detail in the Calvinism series. And so if you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says that he is, and you're willing to confess that and say, you know what? I confess with my mouth that the Lord Jesus, that he is the Lord, and that he is the Jesus that the Bible talks about. And thou shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Why do you need to believe that? Because that's what the scriptures say. The word of God, God's reputation is on the line. What I love about God is, is very simply this. There's many things I love about God, but he has given his word and his word has set the standard of his reputation. So if there's one thing in the Bible that is out of line, then God is a liar. 
He is an absolute liar. And the Bible says that he was God, come in the flesh, and then when he died, he died for the sins of the whole world. And not only did he die, but he was buried for three days, and that he rose again on that third day, defeating sin and death. And if you believe that and are willing to confess that, well, then that's step one. Step two, verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is so simple. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus and what he did for you and his sacrifice? Okay. Then call upon the name of the Lord to save you because you cannot save yourself. That's really what it comes down to. It is by grace through faith in Christ alone. This is so important. This means plus nothing, minus nothing. Any association with works of any kind, of any kind, is not the message of the gospel. This is very important for us to understand because our human nature is that we want to do something. Or after we're saved, we want to prove that we're saved by our works. And that is not biblical. During the church age, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And that means that you cannot lose your salvation after you have it because you did nothing to earn it. The Calvinists would say, well, when you believe that was a work, baloney. That is not true at all. You can believe all sorts of stuff. That's not a work. You're believing what the Bible says, which means you have to have a change of heart and mind about who you are and who God is. And once you have that change of heart and mind about who God is, that he is holy, that he's perfect, that he's pure, that I'm not, and that frankly, I deserve to go to hell because of who I am. Who I am is not the accumulation of what I do. It's who I am. I do the things that I do because of who I am. And I am a sinner. And I know that in the sight of God that I'm not going to make it. And that it's him and him alone that I have any hope whatsoever. Because if I have to do something in order to earn my salvation, then my goodness, I am going to lose it so stinking fast. And there are so many Christian religions and denominations that believe that nonsense. And I'm telling you, it's in him alone. When I die, it's going to be because of him that I have any hope whatsoever. It has nothing to do with my works When he died on the cross, he died for me. He died for my sins. And I'm trusting in him to get me there, to be with him for all eternity. Outside of that, I have no hope. And so that means that you cannot lose your salvation. Calvinism is garbage. Lordship salvation is totally unbiblical. And we talked about that in the Q&A several weeks ago, that if he's not the Lord of your life, he's not Lord at all. That is terrible. That is garbage too. You because you know you need him. And what do you do? Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is that simple that you know who you are, you know who God is, and you don't deserve it, but he's willing to give it to you anyway. And you just call upon him and he will save you. I am trusting, my hope is in what the scriptures say that I'm supposed to do in order to be right with God. It is not based upon my feelings, It's not based upon my life situation. It's not based upon anything else that I can do to even improve myself. It's based upon him and him alone. 
During the church age, our works do not save us, nor do they necessarily prove our genuineness of salvation. And this is where we get in trouble because we can be very judgmental. Because someone can say, well, I'm saved, and then you look at their life and say, well, it doesn't look like it. Okay, be very careful. Be very careful. Because at this time in human history, we are not saved or proven to be saved by our works. This is an internal matter between that person and the Lord. And only God knows. Only God knows. Now, there are times we might be concerned for a friend or a family member and say, hey, I'm really concerned that you're not saved because of the fruit that I see in your life. But be very careful, very careful. That's one of the reasons why I've struggled with my assurance of salvation for so long as a kid and even as a teenager. Because when you think about it, I I struggled so much with, well, if I'm genuinely saved, then why am I doing these things in my life? Which means I wasn't trusting in Christ alone to keep me secure. And so this is very subtle, very, very subtle. And don't misunderstand me. We don't preach a gospel of repentance. There are many people that think repentance is critical for salvation. Now, when I say repentance, I'm not talking about a change of heart and mind. That is absolutely critical. But if you're looking for works meet unto repentance, that is something that John the Baptist talked about. That's something that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. That is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you don't need to do something outwardly in order to be right with God. That's not how this works. It is so simple. I'm wrong. He's right. Without him, I can't make it. And I need to call upon him, and I need to say, Lord, please save me. That's it. That's it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the gospel. That is our message. Any other church, any other faith, any other belief system that preaches or teaches anything else is wrong. It is wrong. Number two, the purpose. What is the purpose? The purpose is to glorify God. You're already in Romans. Turn over to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. The purpose of a true church is to glorify God. Romans 15. Verse 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Our purpose as a church, a true biblical church, will glorify God, glorify God. In Ephesians 3, verse 21, smack dab in the middle of the epistle that explains the purpose of the church and why God created it. It says, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That is our responsibility. And so what is the church supposed to do in order to glorify God? Take a look at John 15, verse 8 and verse 16. Herein, the Bible's so clear. If we just believe it, read it and believe what it says, it is so clear. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. We fulfill our purpose as a church 
when we are advancing the kingdom of God. And that means that we're doing the work of the Lord, which is so simple. People overcomplicate church. They overcomplicate Christianity, but it's very simple. We need to tell the lost how to be saved. We need to tell the lost what they need to do in order to be right with God. And then after we win them to the Lord and they have trusted Christ as their Savior, verse 16 says that that fruit should remain. Well, how do you help fruit to remain? You nurture it. I mean, think about it. Do you want like a whole bag of apples or would you rather have an orchard? An orchard is way more profitable, but it's a lot more work. Because you have to do things in order to take care of that orchard and to get rid of pests and get rid of weeds and do all these things in order to make it fruitful. And that's what it's supposed to be like. And that's discipleship. And so we win the lost to the Lord and they get saved. And then after they saved, we don't leave them there. We help them to grow in their walk with God so they can remain. So many Christians don't know how to remain because they don't know what it means to even walk with God. This is one of our, our greatest responsibilities as a church. A church that is failing to not just preach the gospel, but also to bring people up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a failing church. And it's only a matter of time before it is dead in the water. We need to be doing what God has called us to do. And if we are not doing those two things to glorify God, we will not have fruit, and there's no way, there's no way we can honor the Lord like we ought to. And so that is our purpose. Number three, the ordinances, the ordinances. Two, very simple, laid out in Scripture, believer's baptism. And the second one is the Lord's Supper. And notice we call them ordinances. We do not call them sacraments. This is a very important point to bring out. So an ordinance simply means an observance. And that's what the Scriptures use to describe these things. A sacrament is actually a means of receiving grace from God. And it's often described as a special and mysterious spiritual experience to interact with God. And here's the thing. The whole idea of sacraments, it has deep roots in the false doctrines of Catholicism. And it has seeped into the branches of Protestantism through the writings of some of the church fathers. I just saw something last week. It was an interview, and many of you may know this guy, Francis Chan. It's quite popular. If you were to go on YouTube, you'd find a ton of messages by Francis Chan. And he has had churches, and he's done all sorts of stuff, and he's on the cutting edge of a lot of different things. But he started talking about communion, and he started calling it a sacrament. And he started going down the trail of how the early church fathers and how they viewed communion. And so many churches today are treating it like it's something that's just not that important when there is some sort of a special mystical experience with God in the communion table. And now he's calling it a sacrament. I'm telling you, as time goes on, it becomes so easy to see how different people are going to come full circle and come back in and follow the Antichrist into a one-world false religion. There is no doubt in my mind that there's going to come a day that all the branches of Protestantism is going to, they're going to come back and unify back with the Catholic Church. There's no doubt in my mind. It's been in the works for quite some time. We spent some time even in Calvinism talking about that. That little pamphlet that a guy who's a Catholic put together in order to bring Protestants back into the fold of the Catholic Church. And remember, the Reformation was not to make the Catholic Church biblical. That was never the intent. It was never the intent. It was the fact that we need to reform the Catholic Church to be what it was supposed to be from the very beginning. And so a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about it, but that is the absolute truth. 
So we believe, according to the word of God, that there are two ordinances, that is believer's baptism, that once a person has trusted Christ as their Savior, they are then baptized by immersion. And you can see that in Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 16, and two different places in there. The baptism is for believers only. It has nothing to do with your individual salvation. It's an outward showing of what God has already done on the inside. And of course, the Lord's Supper, and that's clearly outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so those are the only two ordinances. If a church has anything else other than that, it is not biblical. It is not biblical. It is not a true church. Fourthly, the structure. What is it supposed to look like? It is, a true church is independent. It is independent, autonomous, and self-governing. It is independent, autonomous, and self-governing. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 1. Just a little bit to your right. Galatians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I'll show you this verse. In Acts 14.23, this is what Paul did when he was out planting churches. It says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, which are pastors, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Paul was not in the business of policing churches. He checked in on them, and he wrote epistles to them. But this is what they did. After they set in order, they gave pastors to these churches. In every single church, they ordained those pastors, and they prayed for them. They commended them to the Lord. They fully trust that God is able to protect that local church and to lead and guide those individual pastors to take care of those people. And that is the biblical model. You'll see this in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. There were many churches in the region of Galatia that he was writing this epistle to. And you'll find this pattern all throughout the New Testament epistles. Probably the other one that I like to look at too from time to time is Revelation 2 and 3. Very specifically, there are letters that are written to those individual churches. So that means that there is no hierarchy. There is no council of leaders that makes decisions over local churches. Each church is totally accountable for themselves directly to the Lord. And this makes sense, even logical sense. How in the world can a council of pastors or other church leaders make decisions about what's happening in a local church that they're not a part of? How can they? I mean, that would be like us trying to control what happens at Greentown. Like, we have enough issues and decisions to make with our own church. How do we know from day to day, week to week, what's happening in Greentown, which is only, what, seven minutes away, ten minutes away, if that? There's no way. Pastor Jay's responsible, and he's accountable to the Lord for what happens within that church. It is no business of a council of pastors or church leaders to have any influence about what's happening in that local church. That local church will give account to the Lord about what happens in that local church. And God will hold that senior pastor accountable for everything that happens in that church. And I don't care what anybody believes, that is the truth. And on the judgment day, 
of each pastor. I fear that day. I really do. Like Tom and I talk about this, and he's like, hey, be glad you don't have my job. And I said, I will enjoy it as long as I don't. And when God calls, then hey, I will do whatever God wants me to do. But in the meantime, you can take that mantle of responsibility. <laughs> but at the same time, I know that when it comes time for, for Tom Gang to stand before Jesus Christ, I want to do my part as a pastor to have helped him to the best of my ability to lead this church properly. That's my heart attitude. Why would I ever want to do anything to hurt him? It boggles my mind when pastors, just out of the spite of their own heart or pride or whatever, are attacking each other. Like, do you not understand the weight of accountability and responsibility on your shoulders? I mean, obviously you don't, because if you did, you would not be saying the things that you're saying, making the decisions that you're making, doing anything that you're even thinking. And that does not happen in churches today. The structure of a biblical church is independent, autonomous, and they are self-governing. Number five, officers. This one's another hot-button one. You've got two offices within the church. There are only two offices, and we don't have time to look at all these, but I gave you all the references. If you compare 1 Timothy 3 with Titus 1, with Acts 20, and all those verses, if you just go from one to the other, comparing Scripture with Scripture, you will find out that the bishops are called also elders, and the bishops and elders are also called pastors. That is the only office that is in charge of that whole church. Bishops, elders, pastors. Secondly, you have deacons. There are many churches out there that have three offices, and they would have pastors, and then they have men that are ordained as elders. They're not pastors. They're just elders, but they're leaders within the church. And then you have deacons. That is unbiblical. That is unbiblical. If you have a church that have, they don't have any deacons, that is also unbiblical. God has laid out two offices. That is of the pastor and of the deacon. And that is it. No councils, bishops, elder, pastor, that's one, and deacons. And I will tell you, and just, it might take a little bit of time, but you'll find out after a while, any other official leadership structure outside of these two offices, they are going to have massive problems. Massive problems. And it will only be, again, only a matter of time before that church no longer exists, or if they do, they have compromised on the scriptures, and they no longer look like a true church that can glorify God. Now, you may not believe me. We might need to have more of a conversation about that, but it is absolutely true. I've seen it firsthand myself. Number six, the finances. How is the work supposed to be funded biblically? Well, it's funded by free will tithes and offerings. That's clearly laid out in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. These free will tithes and offerings are from individual members of the local church with no strings attached to their gifts. And according to the scriptures, it's not equal gifts, it's equal sacrifice. And it's not about how much you give to the Lord, but how much you keep, knowing that all of it belongs to the Lord to begin with. We do not beg for money. This is God's work. If you have a heart for God's work, then you will gladly give. And we don't talk about giving that much at this church. We don't have to. Because if we are a biblical church, we will be givers. We will be. And there are some people that don't have money to give. Okay, but what can you give? Your time? Your talents? We're so uniquely gifted among us as a body. There's so many things that you can contribute. 
I often told that to the senior hires. They didn't have jobs, but I'm like, but you know what you do have? You have time, you have energy, you have skills. And start giving them to the Lord. And he'll bless you for it. But that's how the work is supposed to be funded. And God will hold church leaders accountable on how they handle the finances. There are so many pastors that misuse and mishandle finances, and God will hold them accountable for it. And we fear God in that manner. We want to make sure that we're doing our best to handle our finances properly because it's not our money. This is the Lord's money. In everything we do, we want to be good stewards of it. And we don't take that lightly. Number seven, the atmosphere. The atmosphere. The atmosphere is supposed to be a loving family as a unified body. That's what it's supposed to be like, a loving family as a unified body. Take a look at John 13. John 13. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Our church should always be a place that people walk into and they are cared for and they are loved. I've often said this, I said it for many years in our youth, and I mean it with all my heart, and I've even said it even after I've been out of the youth. When I am, when I am pastoring over a, like an individual or a group, or even if I'm counseling somebody, or even if I'm managing something, it doesn't really matter what you may do or decisions that you make. That's never going to change the way that I feel about you. Why would it? I mean, could I be hurt or disappointed? Sure. But, like, my, my love that I have for the people that I'm supposed to be responsible for has to be unconditional. Like, why would, I, why would I do that? Why would I want to create an atmosphere in any area of ministry where people are afraid to talk? There are so many churches where people are afraid to talk to their pastors because of how they're going to be treated. That is evil. Or it might be something that's even in your own mind because that could be the case too. We have vain imaginations. I mean, the church should be a place that's like a rescue center. We want people to be nurtured and to grow. And yeah, there might be times when we have to cut in order to heal. I mean, that, but that's with anything. If you truly love someone, you're going to tell them the truth. But why in the world would we try to belittle somebody or make them feel dumb or like they're idiots? Why would we want to do that? This needs to be a safe place where people can feel free to be able to walk with the Lord and to learn how to walk with the Lord. I don't ever want to hurt somebody intentionally. I might do it by accident, but that's never my intention. And I try to make sure that I do the best that I can in order to do that. You don't, a shepherd that abuses his flock is an abomination. I mean, you don't even see that out in nature. If you see a shepherd that abuses their flock, it's not going to be very long before they have no flock because they don't care about the flock. The flock is an inconvenience to them, and they'd much rather that all the sheep die. That's not how it's supposed to be. We need to be like a loving family, a loving family. Ephesians 4 talks about it as a body. It says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So I was recently injured. It was several weeks ago, I twisted my ankle. I was running on a trail, Jake Allen and I, and we were running and we were going through Quail Hollow. I don't know if you've ever gone on the trails of Quail Hollow, but they're tons of fun, except for the roots. That's what I found out. 
But the moment that my, that happened, my body responded. And it began to swell, and I had a hard time walking on it. And my body let me know every single stinking day for like three to four weeks, hey, you're not healed yet. You've got a problem. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Only this past week did I begin running on it. And even then, it's like, hey, what? <laughs> my body was telling me, listen, you're not fully healed yet. Just give it time. There's some injuries that just take time. But my body is taking care of itself. It's how God has designed the body. And a local church is supposed to do the exact same thing. I didn't twist my ankle and my body's like, all right, forget it. Foot, you're gone. Boom, and it's out of here. Like it didn't, <laughs> that would be weird. It would be weird. Now, if my body were to get something inside of it, like an infection or a splinter, how is the body going to respond? Get out. It's the same in a local church. There are people that come in that have agendas, and if it can't be corrected, then it must exit. But we don't want to hurt ourselves. Why would we do that? And yet, and yet, Christians are horrible at this. They do not take proper care of each other the way they should. Oftentimes, in churches, Christians are the worst at treating other Christians. And it's not supposed to be that way. Unfortunately, it can be. But in a biblical church, we will call that stuff out because it's not right. We're supposed to be like a body where every joint Every part is working together because we want to increase, we want to edify ourselves and grow and to mature. That's what a biblical church is supposed to be. And that's what the atmosphere is supposed to be like. And then lastly, the doctrine. The doctrine. And we've already talked about some areas of doctrine, but this is going to cover pretty much everything else. So the doctrine, it is non political, and that is because we are a part in propagating the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Go to Matthew 22, Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So they're trying to trap him. And they're like, okay, we know that you're not a respecter of persons. And so we're going to ask you this question. If you truly are the son of God, and you truly are who you say you are, well then, should we actually pay taxes unto Caesar? Should we actually do that? And this was a hot topic back during this time. Look at Jesus' response in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. I love this response. Because what he says here, well, does it belong to Caesar? Yes, well then give it to Caesar's. Does this belong to God? Yes, it belongs to God. Well, then give that unto God's. 
It's the perfect answer. It's kind of like what he said over in, in John 18. And it's when he was before Pilate. He said this. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. See, what had happened up to this point is that he was offering a physical kingdom, but the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and the Jewish leaders rejected him outright. They said, we don't want it. In fact, we want you to die. So he could not set up that physical kingdom. And so the only thing he could do is to advance the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is that invisible, internal kingdom that God wants to set up in the heart of every human being. In Romans 14, 17, it says this, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It is not physical, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It also says this, if you want to write these references down, in Luke 17, 21, in Colossians 1, 27, it is that mystery of Christ indwelling the believer, setting up his kingdom on the throne of every heart. That's Luke 17, 21, in Colossians 1, 27. And so our doctrine is non-political. Now, a couple things to say about this. The first thing that I want to talk about is a little bit of separation of church and state because this is so misconstrued today. This whole idea was meant, of church and state, was meant to be preserved in our country by the principle of the separation of church and state. But rather than it being something used to keep the religion out of the state, it was meant to keep the state out of the religion. That's very important for us to understand. It is being used today in the wrong direction. They want the Bible out of schools, out of the courts, and out of everything. That was not the original intent of that principle, of that understanding. It was to keep the state out of the church because that's what led us into the mess of the Dark Ages to begin with. And we're going to talk about that with Constantine in the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's something very important. The second thing I want to talk about on that front is that this does not mean that our biblical positions will not encroach on societal or political issues. There's a lot of people that believe that you should not talk politics at church. Well, okay, think about that in practical, real-world terms. If you are a Bible believer and you believe what God has said, how can that not spill over into your politics? Now, I'm not saying that we're endorsing candidates, we're doing all that kind of stuff, but you need to think a little bit here. I am not going to vote for somebody that goes against the scriptures. Why would I? I belong to God first and this country second. That's how it's supposed to be. If you believe what the word of God says, it's only a matter of time where it must prevail over individual politics. And there are certain things that are very, very clear about that. Now, I look forward to the day where this is no longer a problem where Jesus Christ comes back and he conquers all of the nations of the world by force and he sets up his own kingdom and then we'll finally have peace when it comes to politics. But until that day comes, it's just part of, it's part of life. But there are way too many Christians that are putting their faith and trust in politics rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to understand, yes, I believe that God has set up the United States for a certain time within human history. But I also believe that because of the freedoms within the United States, sin has run rampant, and we have become one of the greatest exporters of corruption in the entire world. And so for people to believe, you know, God bless America. Now, I want that. Believe me. Don't get me wrong about that. But you've got to understand that this country does not really belong to God. Because who is the small g God of this world? 
It is the devil. The only nation on the planet where God says you are mine is the nation of Israel. And until they get right with God, God does not really own any country, any nation on this planet. It's not going to happen until Zechariah 12 and 14 come into play where they finally receive him as their Messiah and then Jesus Christ lays waste to all the other nations of the planet. Now, you can study history and you'll see how God has used certain nations. I believe that he used Great Britain mightily for so many different things. I think that he's used the United States mightily. If you go back and study the Philadelphian church period, it was the greatest time in human history where the world was, was won over. I mean, they, they went to every corner of the earth taking the King James Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there are more people that got saved during that time. It's the greatest time of missions activity this world has ever seen. But the leadership of all these nations do not belong to the Lord. Not yet. Not yet. And listen, they cannot go outside of God's bounds. God will not let them do something if he doesn't want them to do something. He, it's very clear. The Bible talks about that extensively. Extensively. But we are not in this. We are not in this for America's sake. I want you to understand this. Our lives belong to the Lord. And so when we vote... We love our country. We will fight for our country. We will defend our country. But when we vote, we better vote biblically. We have to vote biblically because that's the kingdom that we belong to. And I can't wait until there's no conflict with this anymore because sometimes I feel like I'm voting for hypocrites. It's almost like the lesser of two evils or four evils or 16 evils. <laughs> so we got to do our homework. doesn't mean you don't vote, but you vote biblically. And so in addition to these items listed above, you've got the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, humans are born as sinners, Christ's blood atonement for sin, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, eternal security of the born-again believer, priesthood of believers, evangelism and discipleship, the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the premillennial return of Christ, and there's so much more. And of course, I wanted to just cover it all and just put a little asterisk there if you see more details on our FBCJ doctrinal statement on our website. And I will tell you too, I've had a lot of folks that have visited us over the years that not only appreciate that we are very open about, our, about what we believe, but they also say, I appreciate that you put on there what you don't believe because there's so many churches that don't put either. Like you can't even find doctrinal statements anymore on a lot of churches. You can't. And if you try to call and get one, it's still impossible. So we want to be very clear about what we believe and what we don't believe. And so lastly, what does the Bible say? So these are marks of a true church. These eight things we went through tonight, these are marks of a true church because it is what God clearly laid out in his word. It is important for us to understand, observe, and protect these biblical marks, especially during this corrupt Laodicean period of church history. Local churches are to be the pillar and ground of the truth. And that can only happen if a church stays true to the word of God. Once a church decides to no longer hold fast the form of sound words, it will no longer be able to bring God the glory that he deserves. And I believe that the whole goal of this study, especially with this particular lesson, is that you should be able to walk into any church, I don't care where it is or what it is, keeping these things in mind, comparing it to what the scriptures say, and you should be able to know within one service if it's a biblical church or not. And in the weeks to come, we're going to take a look at the same things. We're going to look at the founder of that particular religion or belief system. We're going to look at their authorities that they claim to hold to. 
And what are the things that they believe? And we want to compare that to what the Bible says. The Bible is our final authority. It must be. And we need to work hard in order to keep it. Because there's a lot of people that don't think that's important anymore. They don't. Like, what does sound doctrine matters? Oh, it matters. It matters greatly. And we need to make sure that we hold fast to that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and how clear that you make it. And I pray that we would never do anything within our local churches that we just invent in our own hearts and minds. We need to do the things that you have laid out very clearly in your word. And so I'm very thankful for this study. I'm thankful for um, even years ago, uh, I was going over some notes of Pastor Tom teaching this study down in New Philadelphia, and, and it was such a blessing to be able to go, go over some of those notes again and, and um, to see how you moved him and his heart to teach some of these things and, and the things you're even doing in our midst today as a result. And so God, I pray that you would equip us and that we would allow you to equip us properly so we can earnestly contend for the faith and to be properly equipped in order to reach the people around us so that you can be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.